Let's open our Bibles to Colossians, start a brand new book of the Bible, um, take every opportunity to read ahead, read the book of Colossians, pick up a commentary. Um, these are great studies, and I think God has great things. I want to draw your attention to Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthen with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, and he's delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us, or your Bible might say conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, Let's hone in on verse 15. These are glorious verses. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him... All things consist. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the first of many, the prototype. That in all things, he might have the preeminence. There is so much in these opening verses we can spend a month here. And I don't know, maybe we will. I mean, it's incredible. It's, it's like holy ground as we look at these verses. And specifically, verses 15 to 18, uh, when you start to plumb the depths of this, you're going to be so inspired when you walk out of here. Now, most of you know the Apostle Paul wrote 13 of the 21 New Testament letters. And as Paul would write these letters, Paul didn't know they would become part of Scripture. They were God-breathed. He was moved by the Holy Spirit. He was writing these letters to encourage churches. They were living under heavy persecution, the Roman Empire. So he's encouraging them in our faith. Sometimes Paul was writing to them to correct heresy that was coming into the church. And then many times he was just writing about doctrine, about the resurrection, communion, uh, worship, things like that. But in every letter, Paul's heart is that he loved these churches. He wanted them to grow and to abound the knowledge of God. He wanted them to work, walk, walk worthy of their calling. So every letter that we study and we're moving through the Bible has a theme. And these themes, I believe, as we walk through them, there's something God wants to do in us. For instance, when we studied the book of Ephesians, we found out that we have this incredible inheritance in Christ. That was a phrase that was used many times in Ephesians. God blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in heavenly places. And so as we go through Ephesians, hopefully you've understood those blessings and you started to walk in them. We can be a better people. Uh, a more glorious church from the realities of understanding our inheritance. We just finished Philippians. The theme was joy. And the idea is that joy should permeate our Christian experience. No matter where we are, no matter what season of life, what circumstances we face, we should have the joy of the Lord. Paul, writing from prison, said, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, Rejoice. 
Wednesday night at one of our baptisms, this is why you have to be careful about giving a microphone to someone, uh, the woman said, I've been here since media, but I want to get baptized tonight. She goes, in media, the church was unfriendly. Now that we're out here, we're very friendly. And I thought, oh, maybe we study the Philippians. That's why we're more joyful. Maybe it's the water. I don't know. But hopefully our joy can increase and we become more attractional to people. The theme of Colossians jumps right out of us. Eight times in verses 15 to 18, we get a personal pronoun for Jesus Christ. By Him, all things were created. Through Him, all things were created. He's the image of God. He's the firstborn of creation. The firstborn of those who would rise from the dead. And listen, He's above all things. This is glorious. What we're going to unpack in Colossians is that Jesus is all you need. Jesus is enough. You're probably thinking, oh my gosh, Pastor Bob, isn't that what we always talk about? Jesus is enough. Jesus is greater than everything. Jesus is all I need. No, we're really going to talk about it. Because you know what I've observed? This is my life. What I've observed 30-some years walking with Christ is we all drift. The writer of Hebrews says, give the more earnest heed. In other words, beware lest you start to drift. And you know the deal. You walk in the ocean, you're having a conversation with someone, you jump over a few waves, you look back, and you're two blocks away from where you started. You don't even realize it. And that's what happens in Christianity. We came to Christ because we came to the end of the road. We looked at philosophy. We looked at religion. We looked at the pleasures of this world. And when we found Christ, it was like finding a treasure. And we went and sold everything we had to buy that field where that treasure was. And we ran around zealous as young Christians telling everybody, Jesus is all we need. Jesus is enough. The problem is... It starts to become Jesus plus the church I go to. Jesus plus this new doctrine I just learned. Jesus plus how you're baptized. Jesus plus this movement. Jesus plus that. Jesus plus Calvary Chapel. Jesus plus Reformed Theology. Jesus plus Charismania. Jesus plus the gifts of the Spirit. And we go on and we go on and somehow we lose our first love. And instead of Christianity, it's churchianity. And it's politics. And Jesus gets lost. And what Colossians brings us back to is the glorious supremacy and centrality of Christ. He's all we need. He's above all things. And it's glorious and it's holy ground. And here's why it's important. If he's above all things and if he's all you need, then everything else is inferior. Look at Paul's heart in chapter 2, verse 8. Beware. Anytime you see the word in scripture, that means this is what you could fall prey to. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, to the basic principles of the world, and not Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you're complete in him. You don't need the latest teaching, the latest thing that's out there. You don't have to discover something new. If it's new, it's probably not true. If it's true, it's certainly not new. You're complete in Him. In Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and everything else will cheat you in some way. Here's the things that cheat us. Look at verse 16. Let no one judge you in food or drink or festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. You know, they're all okay. They're a shadow of things to come. It's only a shadow. The reality is Christ. Here's that word again, verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, delighting in false humility, worship of angels. You can go on and on. Verse 21, do not touch, do not taste all the rules of men. 
Here's another thing that cheats us, thinking that we're superior. Look at verse chapter 3, verse 11. There's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. We're, we're all one in Christ. There's no guru out there. There's no, you know, special person. We're all one in Christ. Then I love this, chapter 4. This is just a little overview here. Look at verse 16. Now when this letter is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of Laodicea. Anybody remember from Revelation what the church of Laodicea was known for? Yeah, being lukewarm, right? Jesus said, look, I wish you were on fire or I wish you were out clubbing. Paraphrase. Because the lines are drawn and we know, we know what's going on. But like half in the church, half in the world, I'll spew you out of my mouth, he said. You're lukewarm. Nobody likes anything lukewarm. Question is, how do you get lukewarm? You take something that was very hot, like our passion for Christ, and you start to infuse things that are cold, things of this world, and you wind up lukewarm. And that's what happened to Laodicea. So we're going to come back to the supremacy of Christ. And we're going to start with creation because that's where Paul starts. He's above all things. He has the preeminence. He is the master of creation. So we're going to look at the Christology of creation. You may have never heard that term before because normally we talk about creation. We talk about God the Father, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We think of Father God. We look at Job and, and we just think God was the agent of creation. I think I walked you through this a couple of weeks ago. Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning, Elohim, gods literally, not many gods, but one God in three persons created the heavens and the earth. You get a little hint there in verse 2 when the Spirit of God is brooding over the waters. Chapter 1 verse 26, let us make man in our image. And so through the Old Testament, certainly God the Father is the one who looks like the agent of creation, but here... Paul opens up the idea that Christ had a significant role in creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, principalities, thrones, dominions. I want to read for you Proverbs chapter 8. Now, there's debate in Proverbs chapter 8. Some people say what I'm going to read to you is the personification of wisdom. Uh, I have always believed this is Jesus Christ. And I love this set of verses. Just indulge me to read them. Uh, chapter 8, verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his weak works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. And so even here the writer knows that the earth is round. When he established the clouds, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters could not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him. As a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, and rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was in the sons of men. And so we get these hints all through scripture 
that Jesus was the agent of creation. And, and here's what concerns me as a pastor and as a church leader is that the doctrine of creation is one of the most glorious doctrine the church has and we're giving it away. We're bowing at the altar of science. We're bowing at the altar of academia. It's so important. That's how the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Couldn't be more clear. It's how John begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so the doctrine of creation is so strong. And Paul writes here the strongest polemic, the strongest argument, the strongest apologetic for not only Jesus being God, but the agent of creation. And here's how important it is. Romans says that the created world is so important that man's without excuse. If, if, if God had never delivered us a Bible, man is still responsible. Romans chapter 1 verse 20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his godhood. It's so important when you look at the sermons in the book of Acts, and that's a wonderful study by the way. Whenever the early church would preach to Jews, they would talk about Moses and Abraham, and they would talk about the prophets and so on and so forth. But when Paul and others would come to pagan areas, they would appeal to the God of creation. Paul, when he got to Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, he stood at the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're religious. For as I was walking around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Here, here's my message, Paul said. God, who made the world and everything in it. God, who made the world. And everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't dwell in temples made with men's hands. God, who made the world. I was in Alaska last summer, and uh, we were walking up a trail to see a beautiful waterfall. And right in the middle of the trail, we stopped, and there were these beautiful carved benches there, and people were sitting there. And these two women were talking, and they were marveling at the benches. I wonder who made these. I like to get these made for my house and my garden, etc., etc. And I kind of entered their conversation. If you know anything about me, I enter conversations. And I said, um, you know, you're really wowed by who designed these benches. I said, what about that tree right next to you? And what about the waterfall? And look at that sun. Like, do you ever wonder who made that? And they're like, who is this guy? Is he a ranger? Is he, you know, is this guy a guy? Like, what's going on here? The psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is his handiwork. Listen to this. Day by day, they utter forth speech. And night unto night, they reveal knowledge. Uh, there is no speech nor language where their words are not heard. I've stood at the Grand Canyon with Japanese, French, German, people that speak all different languages, and there's a universal awe. Richard Dawkins, the profound atheist, said, one would look at the Grand Canyon, and he said, you're almost moved to worship until you realize it's all there by chance. And I'll get into some of his stuff later. No, there's no language. There's no human being that doesn't look at a planet, a ball spinning in space, where everything's been fine-tuned. 
That if we were a little closer to the sun, we would fry. A little colder, a little farther away, we would freeze. And, and a thousand other principles that have to work perfectly. And man is without excuse. It's gone to the ends of the earth. And again, I am so concerned. Because the greatest truth we have, we're giving it away. We're kowtowing to science, to people in white coats. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to jump out of Colossians for just a little bit. And I want to walk you through a little bit of creation. And I want to come back to Colossians. And I think by the end, everyone will be truly inspired. There are four views of creation. There's actually ten, but I'm only going to walk you through four. Now, it's not creationism. If you watch the news and you hear the term creationism, uh, that is a derogatory term term given to anyone who believes the Bible to say we're small-minded and backwards. We don't believe in creationism. We believe in God who created the heavens and the earth. Okay? So here's the four views. The first one is the young earth view. Uh, this view says that God created the world in Genesis, six days, rested on the seventh. They were 24-hour days. If you study the genealogies, it puts us at about 10,000 years old. So the earth would be very young in comparison who, of those who say it's 4.6 billion years old. Adam and Eve and everything in Genesis 1 and 2 are historical. That is the young earth perspective. The old earth perspective is that God created the world Ex nihilo, Latin, from nothing. However, he didn't do it in six literal days. He did it in six epochs or spans of time, thousands, millions of years, which puts us right on the number of 4.6 billion that scientists tell us. And uh, Adam and Eve could be literal, or uh, they could not be literal in that view. Theistic evolution is a hybrid. This is the one I hate the most. Uh, just to be honest, I don't like hybrids of anything. For instance, you know, there's a Cadillac truck. Now, if you have a Cadillac truck, great, you're blessed, all right? But in my mind, just buy a Cadillac or buy a truck. Like, to me, the hybrid, you don't get anything. It's like multi-purpose, right? You know, the Chicago Cubs, Wrigley Fields, the best ballpark I've ever been to, they built a baseball field. Then everyone else went out and built... Multi-purpose stadiums will play football and baseball. Guess what they're all doing now? Going back and building standalone baseball parks. Theistic evolution says the God of the Bible used natural selection, evolution, and guided the process, and hence the earth is billions of years old. Now, there's a new movement called intelligent design. These are people who say, wait a second, the world is far too complex. You know, I, I just described some of it for you. The anthropic principle. For instance, last night was a full moon. Did anyone look at it? It's gorgeous. So, did you realize when you looked at the moon that where it was in the sky is exactly the size the sun is when you're at the beach? Anybody realize that? And what's significant about that, you might want to write this down because it's, it's mind-boggling. 64 million moons, our moon, fit into the sun. 64 million Yet when you and I look at it, it's the same size. So it almost looks like it was designed for our perspective, plus everything else it does, tides, etc., etc. When you go to the Grand Canyon, they'll, they'll tell you it's not only the grandest canyon on earth, it's the grandest observable canyon in the universe, designed for someone to observe it. 
So not only is everything fine-tuned, but it was actually looks like it was designed for someone to observe it. That's why we're the privileged planet. So those who believe in intelligent design said, you know what, it's way too complex. There's got to be intelligence. Michael Behe, Philip Johnson, uh, Daniel Dennett, these, these would be the men who believe in intelligent design. They are premier scientists, and they're saying, you know, the human eye and certain things about life are so complex, they couldn't have got here by chance. There had to be a designer. Now, you can probably tell from my preaching and what I've said this morning, I believe in a young earth and a literal creation of six days. And I want to give you four reasons why I believe that. And the first one is biblical interpretation. Uh, there is a way you interpret the Bible. It's called hermeneutics. And you read scripture the way you read other literature. In the historical, grammatical context of what it was written. The literal, grammatical, historical. And when you read it that way, it's like all literature. You read it that way until it tells you otherwise. So when Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, I know he's moving into a metaphor. When I read Ezekiel, there's a wheel in the middle of a wheel and there's four living creatures. I know we're moving into apocalyptic literature and visions. But otherwise, I read in the literal, grammatical, historical context. Now, there are Bible scholars I love who differ. John Lennox, friend of mine. Collins, Tim Keller. We, our bookstore is filled with the writings of these men. Choose to see it differently. Now, with Francis Collins and John Lennox, I would argue they came from science. But they'll look at Genesis 1 as a poem. It's not literal. And then my question is, well, what happens when a man gets wild by a fish later in the Bible? What happens when the sun stands still? What happens when, you know, five fish and two loaves multiply? What happens when a man gets up on Resurrection Sunday? Is that a metaphor? Do we take that literal? Where do you draw the lines? The word for day in Genesis is the Hebrew word yom, Y-O-M. It's used 500 times in the Old Testament. Every time it's used, it's a 24-hour day, except the day of the Lord, which any student of prophecy knows is an extended period of time. Not only that, there's redundancy, because each and every day it says, and evening came and morning followed the next day. When Moses received the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments was to keep holy the Sabbath. Six days you shall work, and the seventh you'll rest. Why? Because God worked on six days, and the seventh he rested. It seems like the writer of Scripture is pounding home this idea that Genesis 1 and 2 was literal, historical. A great proof of this is, what did the people of the New Testament believe? Jesus said, have you never read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? He didn't say they evolved. Paul told Timothy, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Corinthians says, if we all died in Adam, we'll all rise in Christ. So it seems like the Bible they knew, the Old Testament, they interpreted it in that way. Second reason is... Evolution theory. Evolution theory. Used to be called the theory of evolution. No more. It's just called evolution now. I wouldn't believe in evolution if I was an atheist. 
If I was getting drunk every night, sleeping around, not serving God, I still wouldn't believe in evolution. And by the way, don't, don't get fooled by intellect. Did you ever hear the thing, it doesn't pass the eye test? I mean, come on, I look at a giraffe, and you really think I believe his neck grew over time so he could eat from those bushes? And, and, and I'm not making light. I know everything they believe, by the way. I've read all their books. I, I get it. I'm not making, I'm not oversimplifying. Larry King, the reason why he was such a great talk show host is that he could take the complex and make it simple. He had seven guys on one time talking about evolution versus creation. And he turned to John MacArthur, a pastor, and he said, John, the world 10,000 years old? Because he knows that's an argument. He turns to the evolutionist. He said, Mike, if we came from monkeys, why are there monkeys? Bertrand Russell, famous atheist, in his essay, Why I'm Not a Christian, said, you can't argue with me about creation. You'll say God was always there. I'll say the universe was always there. And he's right. It's a fair fight. I'll argue that I have way more evidence than he does. Strict Darwinian theory. Get one of your kids' textbooks from high school. Evolution is a blind and cruel process whereby complex things arose from a single source. If you think I'm being unfair, slanted, or unkind, this is George Gaylord Simpson, Harvard paleontologist, writing about natural selection and evolution. He said, man, top of the food chain, is the result of a purposeless and natural proposis that never had him in mind. Never had him in mind. It's all time and chance. This is why Richard Dawkins' classic book on evolution is called The Blind Watchmaker. We wound up with a watch, but there was no designer. Dawkins said natural selection is the blind watchmaker, blind because it does not see ahead. It doesn't plan consequence, has no purpose in view. Yet the living results of natural selection overwhelmingly impress us with the appearance of design, as if by a master watchmaker, impress us with the illusion that there was designer planning. Chapter 2 of his book, he talks about bats. Now think about it. Everybody's afraid of bats, right? We were on the mission field in Kenya. Thank God my son went into a latrine. It was one of those pit holes. You ever see one of those? And he's doing number one. And a bat flew out. Can you imagine if one of the ladies on the trip... Had that experience? Oh, my goodness. Dawkins' chapter on bats, he's a zoologist, would make me a Christian. He said different groups of bats use sonar in radically different ways. And they seem to have invented it separately and independently, just as the British, the Germans, the Americans, all independently came up with radar. He said a bat is a machine whose internal electronics are so wired up that its wing muscles cause it to hone in on insects and an unconscious guided missile, like an uh, unguided missile, hones in on an airplane. 
Every insect, every land animal, every sea animal. I've written on bees. We can look at structures. We can look at patterns in nature. Butterflies, no two, no two of the same pattern. Whales migrate from the Dominican Republic, go all the way up to the shelf of Boston, and they feed, and then go all the way back to have their babies. We can look at monarch butterflies that go to Texas, and turtles that all wind up in one place in the world. And on and on and on you go. And it looks like design. And you might say, well, Pastor Bob, here's my problem. Richard Dawkins is really, really smart. I just read a magazine article. Mick Jagger read Dawkins and he said, yeah, it just affirms everything I believe. He's really smart. What you don't realize is there's really smart people on the other side. Philip Johnson has written a book, Darwin on Trial, and we have it in our bookstore. Graduated number one, University of Chicago, one of the most prestigious universities in the country. Went to Berkeley. Graduated number one in law school. There are brilliant people on the other side. John MacArthur summed it up best when he said, to put it simply, evolution was invented to eliminate the God of Genesis and thereby to oust the lawgiver and obliterate the invalidity of his law. Evolution is simply the latest means our fallen race has devised in order to suppress our innate knowledge and the biblical testimony that there is a God and that we are accountable to him. By embracing evolution, modern society aims to do away with morality, responsibility, and guilt. Society has embraced evolution with such enthusiasm because people imagine that it eliminates the judge and leaves them free to do whatever they want without guilt and without consequence. When you look at holocausts around the world and genocide, much of the commentary is once you remove God, everything is permissible. That's what MacArthur's saying. Once you remove God, everything is permissible. The evolutionary lie is so pointedly anti-ethical to Christian truth that it would seem unthinkable for evangelical Christians to compromise with evolutionary science in any degree. But during the past century and a half of evolutionary propaganda, evolutionists have had remarkable success in getting evangelicals to meet them halfway. Remarkably, many modern evangelicals, perhaps it would even be fair to say most people, and it's about 40%, who call themselves evangelicals today, have already been convinced that Genesis' account of creation is not a true historical record. Thus, they have not only capitulated to evolutionary doctrine as a starting point, they have also embraced a view that undermines the authority of Scripture. Norman Geisler, in his book, When Critics Ask, said there is no demonstrated contradiction of fact between Genesis 1 and science, there is only a conflict of interpretation. Either most modern scientists are wrong in insisting the world is billions of years old, or some in Bible interpreters are wrong in insisting in the 144 hours of creation. But in either case, it's not a question of the inspiration of Scripture, but the interpretation of Scripture and of the scientific data. Hence, theistic evolution bothers me the most because when someone like a man at Harvard said that we are here and that man was never thought of, I think, oh my gosh, is that the God of the Bible? On Father's Day, is that our Heavenly Father that says he puts our tears in the bottle that we're the apple of his eye, that every hair is numbered? 
doesn't sound like God. Third reason why I believe in Genesis 1 is man. God certainly had man in mind. He created us in his image and his likeness, gave us free will. Tim Keller, again, whom I love, said you got to believe in evolution of some sort. You've got to believe that God used natural selection in some way. But here's the problem. Keller believes that, but he believes in a literal Adam and Eve. See, in some form of theistic evolution or evolution, man evolved, right? And then God said, oh, you too. You're Adam and Eve. Keller's saying, no, God let evolution go along. Then he created Adam and then Eve. And he has to believe that because he believes Romans that, you know, Christ is the second Adam, we all died. You know, he's got to preserve these truths and the wonderful doctrines that stem out of Genesis. But again, here's the problem. If the first 25 verses of Genesis are a poem and then 26 is literal, how do I interpret the Bible that way? Do I just pick and choose wherever I want, wherever I feel like it, whatever science tells me to do? Why don't we just believe the whole thing? I've always said, if you can believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you can believe everything. Why don't we just believe it all? If you do away with Genesis 1 and 2, you do away with the doctrine of original sin, total depravity of man, justification by faith, salvation, the Bible's first prophecy, the doctrine of grace, everything that happened in the garden and everything that happened on the cross, Murdered us our salvation. And I believe it's historical and literal. Uh, my final point is Paul, Jesus, the early church, church history. Peter and Zechariah both said God gave us the holy prophets. Listen to this. Since the world began. Uh, I don't see any 4.6 billion year old prophet in the Bible. God gave us prophets since the world began. Peter said in Second Peter 3, scoffers would come in the last days. This would be their line of reasoning. Uh, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue. Since creation. You know, God put it on autopilot. And scoffers would come, and he said that line of reasoning would, would, would lead us to, oh, don't worry, Christ isn't coming either, by the way. That's, that could be eons away. See where this all leads? The New Testament says... That's what we should be waiting for, the return of Christ. That's what keeps us hot. They're saying, oh, no, no, scoffers, no, oh, God put this whole thing on autopilot and the return of Christ is long. You know, all this leaven is in the church, by the way. It's all in the church. And I shared with you earlier, not that only God create the heavens and the earth. Not only is the creator, here's a glorious truth, he's the sustainer. He's the painter of the heavens. Every sky, every sunset, every cloud formation. Jeremiah was told, while you were in your mother's womb, I knit you together. I believe God's involved with every, every newborn. You know, your, your biological father gave you a casing. God gave you a spirit and a soul. And he put DNA in you and a personality. Every hair in our head is numbered. When we think of creation, we think of Genesis. But read the book of Job. God comes to Job and he said, Job, where were you 
when the morning stars sang together, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Listen to what God says to Job. Look at the behemoth which I made. He didn't involve. He eats grass like an ox. See how his strength are in his hips, his powers and his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze. His ribs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Surely the mountains yield food to him and all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees. In a covert of reeds and marsh, the lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by their brooks surround him. Indeed, the rivers may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. God said, I designed him this way. Will the wild ox be willing to serve you? Will he bed by your manger? Can you bind the wild ox and the furrow with ropes? Or will he plow the valleys behind you? Will you trust him because his strength is great? Or will you leave your labor to him? Will you trust him to bring home your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but, but are her wings and pinions like the kindly storks? For she leaves her eggs on the ground and warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them. She's a bad mom. Or that a wild beast may break them. She treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. Her labors in vain without concern because God deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. But when she lifts herself on the earth, she scorns the horse and the rider. God said, when I made her, I didn't give her the knowledge to be a great mom. But boy, when she runs, I get great pleasure. We found out that God is involved and gets glory even from the most insignificant things that you and I never see. And he made all this. And it's glorious. And it's wonderful. And it works together. And the truth is God is involved. He's never taken his hand off the wheel. And when we look at Jesus as the agent of creation, it says he holds all this together by the word of his power. Lying in a manger, mystery of godliness, holding the universe together. Sleeping on the Sea of Galilee, holding the universe together. Being spit at, ripping out his beard, held the universe together. Hanging on a cross, he held the universe together. And it says that he holds everything together, that everything was made from nothing. Um, you know it and I know it. Everything we see is made up of atoms and molecules, right? Atoms are 99.999, as long as you can make nines, empty. They're nothing. We have a world that was made out of nothing. Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, that the things which are visible, which were made from things that are not visible. The Bible's not a science book, but it's scientifically accurate. Now here's the beauty of atoms. Everybody knows that there's protons, electrons, uh, in a nucleus, protons are positively charged. The electricity should make them repel, yet in an atom they stay together. Now, science had to come up with something for this. Discovery Magazine uh, had an article called The Glue That Holds the World Together. 1971, uh, scientists came up with this idea of atomic glue. Now, here's what's funny. When you listen to Christians debate secularist, right? 
the secularists, the evolutionists, the atheists, they always invoke this phrase, you may have heard it, God of the gaps, okay? And their argument is, every time a Christian uh, can't explain everything, they just introduce God. God's ways are higher than our ways, and they call that the God of the gaps, and they say that's bad science. But no one ever talks about evolution of the gaps, okay? Like, what was the starting point? They don't know. Where's the intermediary species we all came from? We don't know. Where is man, part eight, part man? We don't know. Evolution of the gaps. Here's another evolution of the gaps. The theory of atomic glue. Now, today they're calling it quarks, particle physics, um, even the God particle. They don't know. But you know. You just read it in Colossians. Jesus is holding the world together. He's holding every atom together. And Peter, a fisherman, a fisherman, said the day of the Lord's coming like a thief in the night. The heavens and the earth will pass away with a great noise and the elements or the pinions or the foundations will melt with fervent heat. You know what Peter was telling you about? When Christ lets go of an atom, there will be a nuclear explosion and the earth will end and God will recreate a new world. But for now, he's holding it all together. Here's the beauty of all this. If he's holding the world together, you think he can hold your life together? You know, we all get to the place where we think we're losing it and I can't hold this all together and I can't do it anymore and it's driving me crazy. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus is your atomic glue. He's the one who can keep it all together. I shared in the Philippians, we've got to shift weight. Prayer is shifting weight from you to God. Getting up and realizing Jesus is all I need. Jesus is enough. My friend Paul Clark, who was an impetus in the Jesus movement, he said, the service starts when my eyes open in the morning and the service ends when I close my eyes at night. And in between, Jesus is the atomic glue. And here's the beautiful thing. You were made for a purpose. And the one holding it all together loves you. Says you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. The beautiful thing about Christianity is thousands of drug addicts have become clean. Thousands of prostitutes. Sexually pure. There's a road that has gone before us. In the book of Colossians, we're going to rediscover a God who can hold it all together. Now, there's one little tricky problem. He's got to be at the center. He's got to be at the center of our lives. He's got to be at the center of our decision-making, our choices, our relationships. He said, if you abide in me, I'll abide in you, and you'll bear much fruit. Jesus at the center of a life is what keeps life together. It's what gives it purpose. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, was asked if he ever died and went to heaven and found out he was wrong, what would he tell God? And he would say, you didn't give me enough evidence. And I think God gave a lot of evidence. One final thing I'll put on the screen. Um, these are marine animals that cannot be seen with the natural eye. I'm supposed to believe no one designed that. 
Looks like something you see on wallpaper. Something you see at a mosque or somewhere. J. Warner Wallace has written a book called God's Crime Scene. I love the title. I love the book. It's written in layman's terms. It has great pictures. God left us a crime scene. He left the smoking gun of creation. And I want to leave that picture up there because it speaks of the glory of God. It's just one of the glorious things. And I want to move into communion. Because this God wasn't so busy with creation, he forgot about you and me. He came down and became one of us. Became one of us, became the creation.